All right, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and we began last week. We'll spend five weeks here in, in Luke's Gospel, walking through looking at Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Today will be our focus. We'll be in Luke chapter 4. So grab your Bibles, find your place in Luke 4. <clears throat> and while, while you're going there, I just want to do a, a little bit of teaching about how to read the Scriptures, how to read the Bible, how to, how to look at the Bible and read the Scriptures. So um, let me make a few statements that I hope will help you. All of Scripture is intended to tell you who God is. So this book, its main goal is not just to help you have a better life. Now, while that may happen, you may discover God and He may help you see how to have a better life. But this book, the Bible, its purpose is to reveal God to you. So when we read this book, the very first question we should be asking is, what does this say about God? Not necessarily the first question shouldn't be, what, what does this say about me? But usually that's how we read. If we're honest, that's how we read the Bible. We, we usually put ourselves into the narrative, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But as we, as we want to see and discover God, what we, what we figure out is that God sent His Son, Jesus, to put himself on display in flesh and blood. And so Jesus came and he lived and he said of himself in John 14, 9, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So as we look to Jesus, we see a beautiful picture of who God is. Who, who God, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, who is that God? Who is he? And well, we, we look to Jesus to discover what God is like. So if you want to know who Jesus is, the, the best place to discover who he is is in the pages of Scripture. So we're going to look at Luke 4 today. It's going to tell us a lot about who Jesus is. Um, so up to this point, if you've been studying and reading along with me um, in Luke, let me just do a quick summary. In chapter 1, we talked about, last week, we talked about how Jesus is the promised one. We talked about how God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And all through the Old Testament, he talks about there's one coming. There's one coming who, who's going to save you from your sins. He's going to be the king eternal. He's going to sit on the throne of David. There's one coming. And in chapter 1, we see that Jesus comes through the miraculous virgin birth. And he is the Savior King, the promised one in chapter one. So chapter two um, is that chapter we read at Christmas time because it's his birth. It's the story of the angels coming and shouting at his birth. And, and the angel declares, um, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so we see Jesus as the good news of salvation. In chapter 3, we have a new character who comes on the scene. It's John the Baptist, and he's a prophet who wears um, clothes made out of camel hair, and he eats bugs and honey, and he's just kind of a wild dude. And he preaches some pretty bold stuff. He says that Jesus is going to be the divider. He's the one who's going to separate the true believers from those who reject him. He says that Jesus has a winnowing fork and he is separating the wheat from the chaff. He says that Jesus has an axe and he's standing at the foot of the tree and he's ready to chop down all of man's systems for getting to God. Jesus has come to destroy man's way of getting to God, but to provide the way. 
And in John, in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So we see Jesus presented as the son of God. And in chapter four, which is where we're going to talk today, we see Jesus, the son of God, triumphant over temptation. So in chapter four, the enemy comes, Satan comes, and he says, if you are the son of God, and he tempts him, and Jesus resists. And Satan comes back and he says, if you're the son of God, and he tempts him, and Jesus resists. Satan wanted him to use his power outside of God's authority to prove he was God's son. But Jesus, ironically, chooses restraint to prove that he's God's son. He doesn't need to exercise his autonomy. He surrenders to God's authority and restrains and says, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, in not doing that, that's what proves that I am the son of God. So before we dig into this text, um, let me just make a few statements again that are, are teaching points. So as we study this scripture in particular, my goal is not just to teach you this text, but my goal is to teach you broadly how to look at the Bible in general. So two, two, two main goals for me. I want to help you in your personal study of God's word. To how, how do you look at the, the scriptures? How do you study the Bible? And then secondly, I do want us to look at this particular text because I think uh, we'll grow a lot from it. When you read the text of scripture, if you're like me, you have a tendency to put yourself into the storyline. And that's probably how you try to learn different things. Let me give you an example. The story of David and Goliath. Who do you connect with? Is it Goliath? (laughs) Do you think of yourself as Goliath? Probably not. Do you think of yourself as King Saul, who's um, too chicken to fight the enemy, but he's willing to let a shepherd boy do it? Probably not. Do you think of yourself as the soldiers who are all lined up and they're all suited up for battle? They've got their battle chance, but they're not willing to go out there and fight Goliath. Probably not. Who do you relate to most? David. But who are you not? David. The point of that story is you are not David. In fact, the, the point of the story is that Jesus is the greater David. He is the one who fought your Goliath and won for you the victory. You can't be the hero in the story of the Bible. That's not your role. It's not my role. But we have a tendency to interject ourselves into the storyline that way. In the story of David and Goliath, you and I are probably the soldiers on the sideline who are too scared to fight. We're we're there, but we're too scared to go to battle. We don't quite have the faith in God that David displayed. What about the story of Moses and the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and God has set them free with these ten plagues. Incredible stuff is happening. Moses leads them through the Red Sea and they get on the other side. And there's this huge celebration. When you read that story, who are you in the story? Probably you think of yourself as Moses. But you're not Moses. You and I are the Israelites who are complaining about being in the wilderness. We long for the luxuries of Egypt even if it means slavery. That's who we are. That's who we are in the story. And Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the one who sets you free, not just from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to your sin. And he's delivered you for all time. And yet, in our lives, 
in the freedom that we experience in Christ, we still look back to the life we used to have and we think about, oh, the stuff and the life and the things that we might could want. Back in slavery, that's who we are. That's who we are in the text. So when we read Luke chapter 4 today, I want to push against your tendency and my tendency to put ourselves into the main storyline as the main character. When we read the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, our tendency is to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. That's how bad we are at this. Is we begin to think, well, oh, this is how I need to fight the enemy. Oh, that's what I need to do. I just need to quote that scripture from Deuteronomy when I'm tempted. And while there are some principles there that we can learn, that is not a good way to read the Bible. That's a very dangerous way to read the Bible. The truth of the scripture is this. It's not your story. It's his story. And it's meant for his glory. When we read the book and we put ourselves into the character, the hero line, that's trouble. That's idolatry. And I want to call us to read the Bible rightly. When we read this text, we should stand back and give glory to Jesus who stands alone as our hero. He's the hero of the story. So some thoughts to remember. Here they are. The Bible was not written about you. It's not your story. The Bible wasn't even written to you. But it was written for you. It is for your benefit to read the text and to see the beauty of the gospel. The Bible is about God. It is the revelation. That word, by the way, it sounds kind of spooky, but it just is the word apocalypsis. It just means the unveiling. So imagine a big portrait You know, uh, a master painter has painted a big portrait and it's under a black drape to say it's the revelation literally means to pull the drape and reveal what's there. So this book is the revelation of God. It's the revealing of God. So the dangerous thing is when we read the book and we put ourselves into the main character and we pull the curtain, who's there And we discover all the while we've been reading the book in an idolatrous mindset. And I want to caution us not to do that. Today, as we read and as you read later on, as you read the scriptures, make sure you're reading to discover God. So when we read the Bible, when we read in a moment, I want you to be asking and answering the question, who is God? What does this tell me about God? So let's take a look now with all that as the build up. Let's take a look now at Luke chapter four. So in honor of God's word, that's about him. Would you stand with me and let's read Luke four verses one through 15. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, 
to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Father, we confess our tendency to put ourselves in your shoes, and today we refuse to do that. We want to look at this text and be thankful for Jesus, the one who, when tempted, overcame and fought back the enemy with perfection, with such grace and with strength. And we look to him not mainly as our model, but mainly as our hero. Lord, help us to see him, to behold his glory, and teach us today how we can be like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, not to belabor the point, but just to make a couple of more strong statements that I hope will help you. We can't draw near to Jesus until we recognize who we are in his story. Again, this is his story. Who are you? Who am I in his story? Um, We are the broken. We are the sick. We are the needy. We are the sinner that he came to save. That's who we are. Until you rightly see who you are. You will never treasure Jesus for who he is. Until you rightly see yourself for who you are, you won't treasure Jesus for who he is. So I hope you've got one of the little teaching guides on your way in. We're going to walk through that together. Um, this, uh, I think this will help you if you use this because um, for me, when I write, I remember. And I want you to remember what we're talking about. I believe it will help you. Um, as you try to live for the Lord. So the first thing I want us to notice um, is we see um, the main character, Jesus, the Son of God, and then we have a supporting character that's almost in the shadows that if we're not careful, we overlook. And it's, He's the Holy Spirit. So I want you to look with me. You see Him mentioned three times in this text. Verse 1, He's mentioned twice. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit. And then in verse 14, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, if we broaden our context just a little bit, we go back into chapter 3. We see the Holy Spirit introduced at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And um, all of the gospel writers record that the Spirit of God came on him like a dove. All right, that's this, this first introduction. And 
As the Spirit came on him like a dove, this voice from heaven says, this is my son, right? Well, then Jesus fights the enemy through temptation. And then right after that, if you go a little bit further in Luke 4 to verse 18, he, he, he opens the scroll of Isaiah for his very first sermon. And guess what he starts with? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right. So all I'm trying to say is that the Holy Spirit is a big player in this storyline. And we ought to see and recognize that Jesus is actually saying and, and through this text, he's saying the Holy Spirit is a big player in his strength to fight the enemy. So I want to ask us some questions so just just to make some statements, three quick statements. We're talking about being full of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about being led by the Holy Spirit, and we're talking about being in the power of the Spirit. So what do those things mean? I'm just going to be quick here, but um, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, The idea that a Christian can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, there's exhortation from uh, the apostle writers, from Paul, from Peter, from others, that say... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're not necessarily talking about um, salvation, like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. What we're talking about is something different. It's this idea that you can be filled and then also not be filled. As a believer, a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, how are you not filled? Well, I want to I use a text to explain this. I think Paul helps us greatly with an illustration. So grab your Bibles and go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians 5 verse 18, there's a quick illustration here. Um, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So that's an admonition from Paul. Be filled with the Spirit. But he gives us a a metaphor or an illustration to sort of help explain what that means. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And if you remember, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples and they began speaking with other languages and all those things, the people that are gathered around are like, man, these guys are drunk. Do you remember that? It's only nine in the morning. These guys are drunk. You know, it was a big deal there. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. And in another place, he says, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. But here in Ephesians 5, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Here's what I think he's telling us. He's teaching us that being filled with with the Spirit means to be under the influence So when you've had too much wine and you're driving, there's an actual uh, penalty for that. It's called you get a DUI, which means you're driving under the influence, right? So under the influence of alcohol means you're, you're not quite in control. There's something else controlling you. There's another substance controlling you. Likewise, Paul is teaching us to be filled with the Spirit means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. To be under His influence. So if you will, just imagine with me, your life is like a glove. And to be filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit of God has put His hand into your life, your glove, and you are now being controlled by the Spirit who has filled you. 
Does that illustration help to sort of give some clarity? He's controlling what you do. You're under His influence. So when we read, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, what we discover is that Jesus is under the influence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what you need to know is that is a submission to authority. That is a yielding, a personal yielding where you, you say, Lord, I don't want to be the boss today. I want to yield myself to the Spirit of God. Would you control me? I want to be under your influence, under your control. Would you speak? And if you'll speak, I'll do it. That's what we're talking about. So full of the Holy Spirit means under the influence. Secondly, to be led by the Spirit. Well, this is just the outworking of being filled, right? If you're filled and under the influence, then you're, you're going to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. And then what we see lastly in verse 14 is Jesus walks away from this situation where He's been tempted and He has yielded to the Spirit. He's yielded to the Spirit and resisted the enemy. Yielded the Spirit, resisted the enemy. So, what we see is that he walks away from that situation in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we pull from that. When you walk in the fullness of the Spirit, when you follow the leadership of the Spirit, when you obey the voice of the Spirit, when you speak the words of, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, these are displays of Spirit influence. These are displays that the, the power of the Spirit provides. And when you flex these muscles, these spiritual muscles, you grow stronger in these ways. So Jesus is beginning his ministry, his public ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is something that you and I can do um, if we will yield to him. If you will yield to Him, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a spooky thing. It's just yielding your, your rights to control yourself to the leadership, influence, control of the Holy Spirit. Just to say to God, Lord, whatever you want to do with me today, I'm yours. Do you ever pray that way? Like, God, I refuse to go my own way. I'm going to do whatever you say. Do you pray that way? I hope you will. The second thing we see in this text, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Um, again, the story of Jesus in the wilderness is not primarily teaching us how to fight against temptation of the enemy. Although that's a great thing. We can learn from him. The primary purpose is not to teach you how to fight or how to use Scripture well or how to do all those things. When we look to Jesus, He's not mainly providing for us in this text a model to follow. Instead, He is becoming the warrior king who's going to provide for us mercy when we fall. Not mainly a model to follow, but mercy when you fall. Now those, those truths... And his example, they're definitely in there. They're just secondary. So let's start with the primary thing, which is to look at Jesus and shout, He wins. He wins. So we've got the enemy tempting him. We're just making some observations. Jesus was tempted by Satan to provide for himself. Turn that rock into bread. You don't need to depend on God. You can do that. 
if you're the son of man. Prove yourself, provide for yourself, right? That's the first temptation. The devil tempts Jesus to use his powers for himself. Hey, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms and all the people will be worshiping you. The irony here is that God's already promised those things to Jesus. That's, that's Jesus' destiny, but this is a shortcut. The enemy wants Jesus to take a shortcut here. And uh, he's not willing. He resists. The third thing, the devil tempts Jesus to force God's hand of protection. It's just crazy how the devil uses Scripture, actually, to, um, to tell Jesus, hey, throw yourself off this cliff. God says you're going to be the Savior of the world. He won't let you get hurt. Prove it. If you're the Son of God, prove it. Force God's hand to protect you. Jesus resisted Satan with the word. He resisted the devil with the word. So here's the crazy thing we learn about that is what does Jesus believe about the Bible? What does he believe about the word of God? Well, he believes that the Bible applies to your every temptation. When you're tempted, do you quote Deuteronomy? (laughs) I don't. I'm just saying I usually don't. But what Jesus is showing us is that all the Bible, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness and rebuking. All of Scripture is useful for your temptations and mine. Um, the second thing, the Bible is truly the words of God. He has truly inspired it. They're, they're inspired by God. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the rest of that quote from Deuteronomy that Matthew includes. And then the third thing, the Bible is really, it is the the real authority. So when Jesus uses the scripture as his weapon against the enemy who says um, this authority has been given to me. And Jesus says, mm, it is written. He's coming at the enemy who thinks he has authority with the real authority. God's word. Let me give you two things. As we look to this text, we just want to see the glory of Jesus. Here they are. You ready? Jesus is the better Adam. So once again, when we read this text, our tendency is to put ourselves in the storyline of the hero. And we think, well, how how would I fight the, the devil if he tempted me in this way? Here's the reality. You and I are Adam in this story. We are the one who fell with just a little piece of fruit. Like it was easy to get us to fall. We we fall with, with fruit. We're so easily deceived. Jesus is not. He stands against the enemy. He's a better Adam. Um, Look back at Luke chapter 3 for a moment. You know, we had Jesus being called the son of the... You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. That's what the father said at Jesus' baptism. So you imagine the enemy, the devil, is there listening to that declaration from heaven... And so he's the one who's going to go come back on in chapter four and say, well, if you are the son of God, then do this. But in between there, there's a little phrase when we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
Look at Luke 3, verse 38. What does it say of Adam? It says that Jesus is the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Then verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Who is he? The son of God. Lowercase son. The son, lowercase s. You see, Adam was created in God's image. He was made to to represent God and to reflect God's authority in all creation. But Adam failed. And he's the lowercase son, the created son of God. Jesus is the uncreated one. He wasn't created. He has always existed. God the Son has always existed from eternity past and will always exist to eternity future. We get Jesus at the incarnation, which is where God put on flesh and came to live with us. So Jesus came as the better Adam. I want you to write, if it's not in your notes, I want you to write Romans chapter 5 and read this later. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. I just want to read you a segment of it, but I think this will really bless you. Romans 5, um, I'm just going to read verses 17 and 18. It says this. Now, remember, we're comparing the first Adam with the second Adam. The, the failure Adam with the better Adam. That's what Paul does here in Romans 5. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So if Adam, all men die, in Jesus, people live. Do you see that? Look at verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In Adam, that's us, we all die. But in Jesus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in me, though he die, yet he shall what? Live. He's the better Adam. When we look at Luke 4, we shouldn't see ourselves and how we should fight. We should see Jesus as the winner. Jesus wins. And secondly, Jesus is the better Israel. We have a beautiful book in the Old Testament named for the prophet Hosea. And the book of Hosea is a story of God as a husband And Israel as his adulterous wife. And she's constantly going and selling herself to other men, having children with those men, bringing those babies back to her husband, Hosea, and he raises those babies. It's a crazy story. But God in that story is displaying himself and his people Israel. In chapter 11 of the book of Hosea, he actually switches the metaphor from husband-wife to father-son. And he says, Israel is my wayward son. So what we have here is Jesus is now being presented as the better Israel. When we look at Israel, all through the Old Testament, we see a son, as God calls Israel, his child, his son, his beloved son, all through the Old Testament, as a, as a people who are constantly running from him, constantly raising up other idols and worshiping other gods and trying to do things as much as God comes in and rescues and, and 
fixes their problems, they still default and go to other things. And what we have in Jesus is the faithful son who will not be taken off his mission. He's the better Israel. Thirdly, lastly, Jesus is our victory. So now we've talked about how Jesus is the one who wins. This is his story. He's the main character. How does all this play out in your life and my life? And so uh, I want us to look again at this text today and not see ourselves, but see Jesus. He's the victory. He's our hope. We put our hope in him. Our hope is in him. As we've talked about, Um, we rest in hope He is the anchor for our souls. And Psalm 42, 5 says, hope in God. John 14, 1, Jesus says, "Um, let not your hearts be troubled. Hope in God. Believe also in me. So we behold Jesus, the Jesus that we've read about in Luke 4. He's the son of God who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Hebrews 4 talks about that. He's our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We look to him. We put all of our hope in him. So three things. First one is this. Rest in Jesus Christ as the victorious son of God. We put all our hope in Jesus. We rest in him. He has done what we could never do. He has finished the work of our salvation and all we're called to do now is believe, to trust in Him. We cannot work for our hope. That's good news, y'all. A friend of mine texted me this morning. He was on a flight early this morning um, from Richmond to Tampa and he texted me this morning. He was like, man, I'm so on fire right now. I just had an incredible conversation with a Muslim. Um, And it all boiled down to this. This is all via text. He was like, it all boiled down to this. I told him that I was so happy that when I die and stand before God, it's not what I've done that determines my salvation. It's what Jesus has done. That's our hope. It rests on Him, not on you. And I want you to see the danger of putting yourself in Luke 4 and thinking you can do what Jesus did. You can't. But he did. So we rest in him. He's the only one who can save. He can save you. There's no one beyond his saving. No one. All you need is need. I want you to think about that. The only requirement of salvation is that you come desperate. You can't come to Jesus and... and, Ask him to put a little salvation into your portfolio. Like, just need a little, just want a little Jesus powder on my already good life. Won't you sprinkle a little dust on my already really good life and make it good forever? Nope. You have to come and scrap all of that and say, I am undone. I desperately need you. And if you don't come that way, you don't come at all. All you need is need. So first, rest in Jesus Christ. Secondly, resist the enemy. So here's the thing. Even though Jesus has done everything, right? And we don't depend on what we do. He does call us to live holy lives. So how do you do it? 
How do you resist the enemy when he tempts you? Well, now, now we look to Jesus as our example. And so here's what we see. We be filled with the Holy Spirit. We be led by the Holy Spirit. We be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You'll resist the enemy when the glove of your life is controlled by God. You will. You absolutely will. Um, James chapter 4 gives us a, 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 a three-phase process for resisting the devil. You ready for it? James 4 verse 7. Here it is. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Y'all ready? You want to say that with me? Here we go. One. Submit to God. Two. Resist the devil. And he will what? Flee from you. Now listen. Don't get that out of order. Don't try to resist the devil without submitting to God. That will not go well. Um, Not long ago, my children and I were taking a walk. And we were walking down the street. And um, my, my oldest two children... My oldest one, she likes to run on ahead, and my middle child, she's the drifter. She drags behind, and I'm constantly going, come on, kid. Well, um, dog got loose from somebody's yard. Vicious, mean, barking, growling, snarling dog comes chasing Reagan. And um, Reagan sees, and here's this dog. She takes off running, coming to daddy, right? She's running to daddy, scared out of her mind. She runs to me. She she. I squat down and she jumps up in my arms. I get her in my arms. And, huh, she's scared. The dog com- keeps coming. He's getting close. I'm getting ready to kick it in the face. All right? Dog's getting close. Guess what Reagan did? She went from scared, little timid, to get out of here. Go away, dog. Now, I want to ask you, where did she get that confidence? From the strength and security she found with her daddy. When you submit to your father, you can then resist the devil. But don't you try to do it without him. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. How else do we resist the enemy? Three things. Know the word. Trust the word. Speak the word. Know the word. Trust the word. Speak the word. The word. Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. I know it. You're not going to have this little book with you everywhere you go that you can, when the devil tempts you, go, hang on a minute, i got a verse for that. Hang on. Put it in your heart. Get it in your mind. Speak it. All right. Know the word. Trust the word. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Trust the Word. And thirdly, speak the Word. The crazy thing about your heart, right? Your heart tells your mouth what to say. Jesus says that. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But you know what the Bible teaches? It teaches that your heart actually learns from your lips. So there's a wild cycle that happens here. Your heart speaks it. Your mouth hears your lips say it and it gets deeper rooted into your heart. Did you know that? So when you speak gossip or you speak damaging words, they go deeper into your heart. When you speak truth, the same effect happens. It goes deeper in your heart. I want you to write this down. Psalm 141 verse 3. 
We're given this word. I think it's beautiful. It says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Set a guard over my mouth. Like, Don't let me say things that are going to teach my heart lies. Help me to speak the word. Know the word, trust the word, speak the word. And lastly, rest in Jesus, resist the enemy, and rejoice in Jesus. Because in him, sin is powerless. I'm going to say that again because y'all didn't get it. (laughs) Rejoice in Jesus because in him, sin is powerless. Now listen, Romans 8 Romans 8 verse 37 says this. Through Christ, you are more than what? More than conquerors. You're not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. Through Christ, you're more than a conqueror. So here's the crazy thing about the gospel. When you rest in Jesus, when you yield yourself to the Spirit of God, and when you know the Word, trust the Word, and speak the Word... You are in Christ in a way that he's enabling you to be powerful over the temptation of the enemy. And you ultimately will be more than a conqueror. Jesus is our victory. Are you thankful to be on his team? Oh, I am. Jesus wins and I'm with him.